State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Welcome back to another episode of the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. This week, we have part two of my lengthy conversation with good friend Richard Shrivener. Now, Richard Shrivener is a personal trainer and nutrition therapist in London. He is also an international presenter, the lead global master instructor for Animal Flow, and he is a research and development manager for Train Fitness. Now, he has a wealth of knowledge, and specifically within this podcast, he talks all about how you can start to integrate ground-based movement into your training, even if powerlifting or bodybuilding are your goals. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation. Sit back and relax, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome back, Richard, to the State of the Industry podcast, part number two. I really enjoy this discussion about ground-based movement because as I mentioned in part one, it's something that changed the way that I train, that I train my clients. It opened my eyes to a, a whole new world that I really wasn't a part of. I was never in gymnastics. I was never in uh, even if I look at uh, jujitsu or, or any other ground-based movement uh, you you mentioned capoeira, like it was never in any of that. It wasn't in dance, like nothing. And so my movement specifically when I was younger was limited to sport. So we call it soccer, but football, uh, lacrosse, hockey, all very repetitive movement mm. styles. I actually didn't even get into lifting until I was in high school. And when I did, I was, you know, very, very scrawny, very strong, but very scrawny, very uh, small. Like if you ever saw my, my two brothers, they're very thin, uh, like I was back in the day. And it, it was something that really caught my eye because I was, I was in love with sport and the idea of competition. I was always very competitive. But when I got into the gym, it was one of those things where it's like being competitive in a gym environment isn't always the best idea because that often leads to injuries, <laughs> specifically when we're talking about lifting heavy loads as being what you're competing. Uh, but the same thing when it gets into these calisthenics, these body weight style movements. I remember the first time I saw you at the at the Phylex conference you went into uh, like a tucked handstand in between doing, I think you were doing traveling ape. And I was like, what, what is happening here? You're like, is that something we're doing within this session? Like, you're going to teach me how to do this. I'm, I've, I'm like, I've never been upside down before. Like the things that we like, sometimes we haven't experienced. And, you know, if I'm in a gym environment, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, I need to hop right into this. I need to do that right away. But as I've learned, <laughs> There are steps and processes. There's a way to begin to add this into your routine. Mm. And so can you just discuss a little bit from um, your own perspective, your own training and what you've seen, as well as um, what you do in animal flow and just talk about how you work towards building resiliency to be able to get into some of the positions that you have people in. Um, and I know everybody's a little bit different with how you're going to attack that, but just some basic principles for that and um, being able to start to integrate those 
body weight ground-based movements into your training yeah so and and the the tuck balance uh, handstand is a, is a is a great example actually of um how to think about training i think within calisthenics bodyweight training ground-based training especially um because every movement that you want to be able to perform or that there is a gold standard for uh the way i look at it is that there's a shape to that movement and there might be a little bit of variability but you know there will be some pretty obvious parameters around what what the what the body shape should be to be successful in that movement and so if you're talking about something like a, a tuck balance you've got to be able to get a really nice vertical line from your hands through your shoulders through your back and then with your hips stacked over the top perhaps slightly behind the hands as a counterbalance but your knees as tight into the body as you possibly can and then having enough stability to press the ground away so firmly that you're able to then use that stability to find the balance point and you know, it's been quite an elusive uh, journey for me trying to, to learn how to do that. I'm still nowhere near where, where I would like to be with that. But there's kind of three approaches that I have to adopt to, to my personal training for that particular target. And that is to, you know, ask the questions, well, what joints need to have what amount of, of mobility? What, what access to range of movement do we need at each individual individual joint to be successful at that movement and then to, to then simply assess do i have that or not and i think before you even think about am i strong enough uh, am i skillful enough if you if you can't access the movement it's already a, a non-starter mm -hmm. from the perspective of you'll always be trying to find some workarounds that that doesn't mean you can't attempt it and you can't keep practicing it and working towards it because you'll build mobility and strength through the act of practice but i think you you can't fool yourself into thinking that if i just keep throwing myself into this movement i want to be better at one day i'm going to just be able to pull it off it's just that's just not going to happen so you, you've got to try and attack it intelligently which is a you know a term you used earlier and 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 think okay first of all what what mobility do i need what what access uh, what joint access, what joint ranges do I have to first get into? What, what's the shape of the body? Can I, can I put the body in that position? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, then you've got to, you know, work through that systematically and, and look at what joints might be limiting you. So for me personally, you know, I've always been a little bit limited in getting my thoracic spine extended, getting full shoulder flexion. And I've got a little bit of, you know, uh, anterior scapular tilt and a bit of tightness through peg minor and some stuff going on there so i'm always working on those to try and get better access to shoulder flexion a bit more t-spine extension and then once i can open those areas up i know the rest of the body will will be all right and will conform to the shape i need so that's kind of you know the the first challenge in my mind to any movement what shape do we need and then okay it's important to then start looking at do i have the stability around the joints to lock in that position and you know, intimately linked to stability is, of course, strength. You, I don't think you can really separate those out because stability mm -hmm. is, is having that co-contraction around that joint and then maybe even body-wide or system-wide stability where everything works and stabilizes at the right time together to lock the whole body into position. If, so, if certain things stabilize before others, then you start throwing the body off its shape and therefore you, you, know, you lose a balance point, for example, or you use you lose the impetus of your entry or exit. Um, so you then got to find the stability around the joints and make sure that the stability is being accessed at the right time. And that's in the context of everything going on in the body. And then you've got to build the skill. So you then got to actually put the mobility and the stability into the context of the skill and actually teach the body the neural patterns, the, the motor patterns to actually then understand how to, to enter the movement get into the shape, stabilize it, lock it in, do whatever you need to do, and then exit it correctly. So there's kind of three, three key things there that you have to, to work on. And I think you've got to identify where your strengths and weaknesses are, obviously put pour more time into the weaknesses, bring those up. And then throughout the, the journey of those three streams of mobility, stability, and skill, practice that movement at least a few times 
every time you work on one of those three streams so that the brain is learning what to do with the new stuff that you've gained from that session. Is it, is it new range of movement, new mobility? Is it new stability? Have you worked on a particular element of that skill? Make sure you lock it in and, and at least finish. And that's, that's always my mantra. Finish with you know, three to five reps of an actual real practice scenario of trying to do that movement just so that you learn a little bit more about what you've done in that session and how that's improved. And, and just sometimes when you, I mean, I think a lot of people have, have, have all experienced this where you've tried to learn something new and then just on one occasion, you feel it and you, and you get there and you're like, oh my God, just for a split second, I felt what it was like <laughs> to get there. Yeah. I couldn't do much with it. I couldn't hold it. I lost it straight away, but I just sensed what it was like because you hold on to that feeling and you know what you're looking for next time you're looking to find that that feeling and that that's more of a of a kind of intrinsic thing isn't it you can focus on the joints and and the ranges and the mobility and this drill and that drill and where should that joint be and how much flexion how much external rotation that's very external you've got to feel what the right position actually is because that supersedes everything that that encompasses all of those sort of external points if you can feel where the body should be to successfully um, achieve that and so that's actually you know going back to, to one of your, your questions there it, it's it's something that I try to do a lot of now based on some of the coaching methodology that that's I think come through a lot uh, in the last five years and one guy I really like is is Nick uh, Winkleman and his work and he's he's all about creating an, an image for the person that you are trying to help uh, and you know for example if we're performing you mentioned earlier something like a crab reach and you're, you're driving that arm up and over you might say to a client rather than you know you might tell them okay your arm needs to be held in the center of your body and you're you're looking through your fingertips and your elbows at 90 degrees approximately and, and blah 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 but you might just say to that person you're going to draw a rainbow with that arm and, and those fingertips as you drive up and over. And sometimes just that image that you impregnate into someone's mind is enough to help them be successful with that movement. And then it wraps in to the, to the, to the movement, all of those joint things that you, you want to be there anyway, just by giving them one big sort of internalized image of what you want that movement to look like. And mm -hmm. so I think whenever you can, you take a movement that's quite complex but if you can think of one way for them to internalize that and see what that movement should look like, and then they can, can express that through that one simple coaching cue, then, you know, you've just done so much work in, in one go that, that, you know, you've saved yourself a whole load of complex explanations that you needn't really bother them with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love the process that you, you walked through there. I know, as I mentioned, I'm super competitive and that competitiveness has, uh, has, has caused me to experience several different injuries over my lifetime. And, um, I've done a lot of really weird things and, but they've all pretty much all been in sport. It hasn't been, you know, just random injuries here or there. It hasn't been during lifting. It's been during sport where I'm super competitive and I'll do something that pushes my body kind of beyond that boundary. And so uh, I had that aha moment. You mentioned that aha moment when you're doing a skill and you get that one split second where you're like, that's what it feels like. I think I'm there. Oh no, I'm falling back over. <laughs> and so I was learning, I think about... Uh, year and a half to two years ago, I was uh, wanting to learn how to do a handstand. Uh, I wanted, and this may have been, you know, because of watching a lot of your videos on, on Instagram with the tucks. And I'm like, I just, I, I, I've got all the mobility to be there. I just have never been able to do it. Now I'm six foot two and I got, as, as you do, a kind of lanky arms and legs, like just all over the place. And I've never been in the position so... I've been, I was learning, I started doing some stuff, just getting used to being upside down against the wall. And um, then I just got used to kind of coming up and holding that position for as long as I can, and then rolling out of it. So practicing just failing in that position. So the safety wise, but yeah, every now and then you got that feeling. Um, but then that all stopped when I got like, I got, so I tore my bicep um, mm. about a year and a half ago now. And I dislocated my left shoulder playing baseball. So diving, playing baseball, playing hockey, my right bicep, like just 
in in a row like as soon as my shoulder was better and i was about to get back into it torn bicep and then i i just haven't tried it since and um it's one of those things that i want to get back to so i i i'm gonna follow that process that you just talked about like that mobility like make sure i've got all the mobility still because i'm older now than i was you know two and a half years ago two years ago when i was trying it and then um that stability piece for me is is going to be the big thing in specifically in the shoulders where I've had all that damage and those those issues. So um, I'll keep you updated on how that goes. I'll probably be posting some some pictures and tagging you in them. Yeah, dude, I look forward to seeing it. And I, I think one one more piece to that actually yeah. to emphasize is is trying you know try and figure out the the the, the the, the biggest number of regressive steps that you can take and, and especially when you've had things like injuries and again you know more than anyone because of the good work you do but you've got to make people feel safe you've got to make people feel confident and you need them to experience success because it's the success that actually then builds and breeds more confidence and then only, only then do you feel ready to commit to a slightly harder version of the drill that you're on so if you take someone right back to what is the easiest version of this handstand you know that, that I want to do well let's just tr- let's just train there you know how can I not be successful if I take it all the way back to the most simple version right great I can do that the brain's clocked it it feels happy you know you've satisfied it, its needs for, for safety and now we can take it to the next step and I think even if you can do a regressed version really easily just keep doing them as part of things like warm-ups and, and regularly do those so that you always have those those wins and those successful drills that you know no matter what you'll always be able to do really well that just breeds that little bit more confidence and and and, and acts as a, as a warm-up and, and 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 just gives you that sort of sense of what the movement is and dials you back into what you're trying to achieve and do that before you then take the the, the step to the next level of where you sort of think you are in in your progression towards your your, your pinnacle movement yeah. And, and thank you for making that point. Like that's a, that's an awesome point. I was actually doing some research about a year ago on um, failure and then subsequent task success and you, what you see. And, and this, I was always, I always relate this back to box jumps because that's probably where you see this the most is mm. once specifically in a, with a, with a client who's trying maybe a new height or is trying box jumps for the first time it's always better to err on the side of success rather than have them attempt something that's too high. Because if they fail once, even though they may still be like, I still want to do this, I want to do this, their brain and their nervous system can kind of override what they want to do and be like, nope, still don't feel safe here, fail, 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 fail. So what you see is that when people fail, subsequent task success is lower than if people are successful and slowly build them their way up even within a session between sessions it doesn't really matter because that the brain the nervous system doesn't forget what happened last time you tried to box jump four feet right Uh, and so that's a big thing for me and because i used to work a lot with young athletes and young athletes just want to compete, right? So they just want to compare themselves to either something that they've seen on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, and they want to do it, regardless of whether they have the skills to do it or not. And then if they see somebody else do something like a specific jump height, they want to do it as high Mm. or higher than the other person. So you have to take control of that situation and make sure that you 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 make it realistic. Uh, Because like, I experienced that actually more so when I had uh, I had a client who was doing um, hang cleans and just could not get under the bar. And I'm like, I know you can do this weight. And I hadn't done the research. This is probably like eight years ago. And we we're just doing some Olympic lifting. And I was like, ah, you know how to do this. And that you're, you're changing. And like, I was almost getting frustrated with her because she couldn't do it. And now that reading this, I'm like, oh, stupid Adam. Like, why did you <laughs> put them in that position where there was that failure? And then um, anyways, yeah. Yeah, we live and learn. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, definitely setting um, that those clients up for success by providing them with that opportunity. You know, like we always talk, I know in teaching and you probably do this in, in your teaching as well is you're always setting the student up for success. And it's the same thing with clients. You're always setting them up for success. You're not setting them up to fail. 
right? Yeah. Like you're always looking to put them in that position. Yeah. Great point. So in training now, because uh, this is often the conversation that you have with other trainers who are maybe more into um, powerlifting, uh, into CrossFit, into um, anything else like Olympic lifting, how do you integrate movement-based training into, because I know you're really good at this because you're where I learned how to do a lot of this. How do you integrate it into the training. So if you're doing some hypertrophy, you mentioned at the beginning about just slipping in, you know, an exercise here or there to add to it. So how do you integrate that? And in? how do you choose which movements to perform in different scenarios? Um, and slowly build up as we were talking about that resiliency for those different movement patterns that they're not quite used to yet? Yeah, so I guess it depends on um, how you've set your programs out for that particular uh, training phase. So I think if you've gone for a sort of a very uh, linear approach in terms of maybe like your periodization or your, or your planning, whereby you're focusing four, six, eight weeks on, let's say, hypertrophy or strength training, and you know that that's a hundred percent of your of your training time dedicated to to that goal. And and, and clearly, when you throw everything at it you know, the, the results come more quickly because it's a, a fully dedicated block. And therefore, what that means is it leaves you with much less time overall to work on things like your, your, your movement-based training, your mobility, um, and you're, you're a little bit more hard-pressed to find uh, ways to, to slide that stuff in. But that would be then a, a, an example of where you can put an extended warm-up in, you can have a, an extended cool-down, you can try and find... A day in the week where that's going to be like an active rest or active recovery day and make that uh, an opportunity to put in uh, more movement-based work. Um, but then the off shoot to that is if you've got someone that is using perhaps more of, I guess some people might refer to it as more like a, a conjugate kind of arrangement whereby in a given training week, you might be working on multiple um, biomotor abilities or sort of fitness qualities. And so if, if the overriding goal is to say gain muscle, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single session in that week needs to be a muscle building hypertrophy type of session. It could be that three um, out of the five sessions are, are dedicated to the primary goal. But if someone's also quite keen, as I say, a secondary goal to move better and feel better in their body and make sure that the hypertrophy training that they are doing is not necessarily going to lock them into it to a tight sort of posture or, or affect their posture negatively then you can still have perhaps one or two sessions in the week that are dedicated to movement training using something like animal flow or other types of training approaches that that coach uh, knows about and, and and so that's one option but then there's also another option which is almost like a within session uh, kind of conjugate type of arrangement whereby, and this is something I really like to do, and I do a lot of this with, with clients and even my own training, whereby, you know, if I take, say, a, a, say a 60 second uh, workout duration, what I'm then going to do is just allocate and proportion out that time and say, well, okay, primary goal for, for this session is, um, let's say, strength. So, you know, I'm going to put sort of 30 to, to 40 minutes of, of time dedicated to my actual strength work. That still leaves me 20 to 30 minutes of time that I can dedicate to other stuff. So I might have my first set being my first, say, um, three to four sets being my heavy strength work. Then I might have, say, another one or two sets where I go with higher reps, drop the weight down and give myself a little bit of a hypertrophy stimulus to make sure that any muscle gains I've got in previous sessions is, is being carried forward. And then if I've still then got time at the end, which I, I would build in, then I can actually build in uh, another 10 or 15 minutes of, of movement work as well. And, and e even though those times might be partitioned with say, I don't know, 30 to 40 minutes of strength, you know, a, a, a five to 10 minute section dedicated to hypertrophy and then the, rem the remaining session uh, time dedicated to, to movement, doesn't necessarily have to be in that order Mm -hmm. I can actually arrange things where I put together things like, you know, tri sets or giant sets that might have four exercises in there. And this is something I did with a client just today where we had um, uh, a, a deadlift here. He was doing 
a, uh, a wide grip uh, deficit uh, deadlift. So I had him standing on a 25 kilo plate. We're working full range through the hips and trying to get lots of hamstring and glute activation. Good work for his upper body posture. So he's going for that sort of wide grip snatch grip. So we were doing two heavy sets for him on that particular exercise. Then we drop the weight down. We take the reps up and do more of a sort of a, a sort of strength hypertrophy type of set where we were going sort of to that you know, 10, 12 rep range. Um, and then at the end of that, we were putting in an animal flow movement, which was uh, a loaded beast position. And we were performing a movement that we called loaded beast unload, which is quite high tension and works in through the knees and the hips but it's a great way for him just to work full range through his feet, ankles, knees, and hips. Mm-hmm. And, and is a great active recovery drill before he then cycles right the way back around to the, the heavy sets again, and then, and then works through that one more time. And, and so what we can do in that scenario is we've got, you know, a strength focus, a little bit of a hypertrophy focus, and a little bit of a movement focus. And I, I can even put quite short rest periods in between those exercises because they're ultimately working on three different things. But overall, I'm getting a lot of work done in a fairly short space of time. And even with short rest periods between those exercises, because they're working on slightly different things, there's not a huge amount of fatigue building up in any one of those single um, lifts that would negatively affect it the next time we came around. Mm -hmm. But it, it just means that I'm then able to kill more than one bird with, with, with the same stone. And even though, yes, you know, the disadvantage to that approach is that if you're, if you're spreading yourself a little bit thinner, you're not pr- perhaps getting the, the results as quickly as if you just focused on any one thing. But then I, I'm often in the mind that for most regular clients, unless you are hell-bent on a particular goal or you're an athlete that has to perform a particular sport, you don't need to throw all of your training time into that one objective. For most regular folk that just want to be more healthy, perhaps stronger, better better body composition, move better at the same time, you can actually work on all those things simultaneously if you you structure those workouts uh, in the right way. And I, I really enjoy the challenge of trying to to make that happen it's something i've sort of put a lot of time into in the last couple of years especially trying to figure out how how can you make that work so i'm not saying i've got the perfect recipe yet but uh, but I, I definitely enjoy flirting with those different training structures and, and and outlines to try and figure out a way to to make it happen yeah and i think i think that's great you um i think from a, a rehabilitation standpoint uh, and, or, or I guess injury prevention, injury, m- like minimizing risk of in- injury. Cause you mentioned athletes. I, I actually still think that it would be beneficial to them. Like if you move better, then that's going to help you prevent injuries. Cause your body is going to be able to better sense positions, better create stability when it needs to, where it needs to, um, outside of, you know, just doing, as you said, you know, your deadlifts, your squats, your, whatever you're doing, your rear foot elevated split squats, Bulgarian split squats, whatever you want to call them, right. It doesn't matter what you're doing, being able to move better. Like if that training that you're doing is going to restrict movement, well, that restriction of movement is going to increase your risk for injury. Specifically, if you're in well, what most parts are triplanar, right? Like everything is in multi-directional. So, um, I, I still think like, and this is the conversation that, that I have, and I think we think very similar about this is that better movement quality with slightly less strength or slightly less hypertrophy is probably a better trade-off than you having lower movement competency, but having a bit more strength or a bit more hypertrophy, I think in, in the end run. And that's sport like athletes all the way to, you know, the general population that you, uh, that most trainers will work with. Yeah, 100%. And, and people can still get to the level of hypertrophy and strength that they want to, mm-hmm. if they're just prepared to be patient and just extend that timeline a little bit. And if they buy into that, and they're, 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 they're willing to uh, integrate some of the, you know, the movement training stuff that we're talking about, then, you know, a, a body that's more capable uh, of, and having more movement options is, is is better than one that doesn't for sure on, on, on any level yeah um and and if you have then the strength that goes with that then you've got a, a, a pretty resilient uh body that, that that can apply itself to do you know most physical tasks yeah all right so that actually leads 
directly into the next question and kind of the final question that I have um, about all these body weight training adaptations that we can we can get. And that's how do we adapt the and we don't have to maybe get specific into all of the movements, but how do you adapt these ground-based movements to different types of pain, different areas of restriction and injury? So one of the big things specifically when you look at ground-based movement is wrist because now the hands on the ground in a position it's not generally in, which is a lot of mm-hmm. extension. And then you've also got the great toe because often this is most often done either barefoot or in barefoot style shoes. And you have the big toe into a lot of extension and people mm-hmm. often don't have that. And so how do you modify, let's just stick with those and we'll see how much time we have to touch on yeah. anything else. But how do you modify for those types of things? Yeah, or you've just hit the nail on the head there. The, the, the Probably the two biggest, um, I guess if you want to call it complaints when people try something like animal flow, especially just for the first time, because exactly like you said, their, their tissues and joints are not quite ready for that. And uh, initially they haven't experienced those positions before. And so, you know, no matter what you do, if, it, if it's new, it's going to be slightly uncomfortable. But typically they are, you know, it's, it, the first responses we'll get in a workshop once we're a couple of hours in are like, oh yeah, you know, I can feel a little bit of work in the wrist there. And for some people that do have that stiffness in, in the great toe, that's that's an area that they'll, they'll point out for sure. Um, and, you know, when you're doing something like a a workshop which is seven hours on day one seven hours on day two there's not really much of a work around in, in terms of being able to adjust the the exposure to that i mean you, mm-hmm. you just have to go with it for, for the workshop and do your best but when, when we work as coaches when we're working with clients you know the the the, the simple and, and slightly boring answer is just moderate very carefully the amount of of volume that that you put into those those regions and you know one of the great lessons we have in a workshop is when students start to say man you know I can really feel a lot of work in 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 the wrist and in the hand and my my response to them is exactly you know you're a fitness professional you're pretty hardy you've probably pushed your body through a lot of workouts imagine how your regular client feels that just does a couple of hours of training with you a week and you go and throw them into an animal flow workout that you've just learned you're excited you want to show them all these cool things that you've just learned and and my message to them is please just consider introducing this gradually to them because a you know we want them to enjoy animal flow and if they enjoy it there's so much goodness that they can get from this program um if they're able just to you know ease their way in and what we don't want is for them to kind of walk away with like sore hands and wrists because you know that's going to put them off and potentially they're not going to want to you know come back into that and Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things we talk about in our intros in, in, in animal flow is the importance of the wrist mobilization component that, that we have, which is one of the six components of the program. And that, that speaks to the preparation needed for the hands, wrists, and also the elbows and the, and the shoulders. And one of the kind of, you know, uh, discussions we'll have is just to say, listen, guys, if you stand up right now and you're on your feet, you know, how much do you have to think about standing on your feet? And that's not a trick question. It, it, you don't have to give it any thought at all because your feet, are designed to bear your load ever since you were able to get up off the ground as a, as a small child and stand on your feet. You've practiced this every day of your life and the, the tissues, the joints, everything that you have um, ha- has evolved to bear the, that weight, your full body and more through walking and running and, mm-hmm. and all these sorts of things. You know, there's a lot of forces that go through those tissues and yet you don't even give it any thought. You, you, the, those, those joints can take and tolerate that, no problem. But then when we just look visually at the hands uh, and, and we say, well, you know, let's go hand versus foot, wrist versus ankle, elbow versus knee, uh, and then shoulder versus hip. There's no comparison in terms of the size of the joints, the amount of tissue that supports those joints. And, and the upper limbs are just not designed to bear the same amount of, of, of weight and load. And therefore the, the tissue stress and the tolerance is, is not as great. So. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we should expect people to feel a little bit uncomfortable perhaps when they first start putting weight through those joints if they've never really tried that ground-based training um, before. And so, you know, just surfing back to the, the, the most simple answer in that circumstance is just, be, just graduate the, the amount of, of, of exposure you give to your clients and the way you introduce uh, animal flow or whatever the movement system is that, that you're into 
to them and and eventually those tissues will really quickly adapt like really really quickly if you just give them a 10 minutes to begin with and then take it to a 15 and then a 20 and then you're doing you know a full 30 40 minute session and then perhaps two 30 to 40 minute sessions and then eventually you can go an hour non-stop and then maybe even two hours and, and then eventually you know you, you can do as much as you want to because you've built the the right to be able to do that through that 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 preparation of those tissues and and joint so you know it's it's a very simple, boring answer, but it's just progressive overload, isn't it? Yeah. It's progressive overload in, in a very simple context of just start small and just, you know, build it steadily and, 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 and your exposure grows. Yeah, I always like those conversations that you have with clients um, who, and, and oftentimes with, you know, in regular training, you're looking at things like push-ups, right? It's like, oh, I've got wrist issues. I've got to avoid that entirely, right? Or I've got toe issues, so I have to wear firm shoes so I don't injure it. Or uh, when I stick my toe into the bench while doing or, or while doing a lunge or a rear foot elevated and my toe starts to hurt, so I need to avoid that. And so I think for listeners, the understanding that avoidance isn't the answer. It's, mm. it's not because it's not an overuse thing. It's a I haven't used it thing. Mm. And so as you said, that progressive overload of those tissues is kind of how you have to adapt that same way that you would with every other lift you ever do with any client that you see who's never lifted before who's been sedentary for most of their life. Mm. So when you get down on the ground in that position, you maybe start off by not lifting the knees off the ground and getting into a static beast. You just hold a, you know, that that tabletop position, or you get into a bird dog or something like that, where you're moderating how much load you have in that, and moderating how much time, and then you start to progress, lift the knees off the ground, then you start to progress to, you know, single limb lifts, and then moving and doing all that, and then rotating on that arm and getting into. Uh, whether it be getting into crab position or we can go through all the names, but um, mm. yeah. And I think just the more time that they spend over the weeks and months to follow, the more resilient all those tissues are going to be because they're going to open back up the range of motion you used to have. Yeah. 100%. And, and you know, by extension of what you're just saying there, if you've got people that there really are um, either sedentary or deconditioned or perhaps just generally, you know, lacking strength. You can even take the, the hands up higher off the ground and put them on a, a couple of yoga blocks so that you're actually putting more weight back in towards the lower body where we're typically stronger anyway. Uh, and then from there, progressing them to the ground with the knees down, as you just, just suggested, that's a great way to, to begin. But eventually then, if, you, if we want to progress in our animal flow training, We've got to have the knees off the ground. We've got to have all four points of contact on the ground. Uh, and we've got to then try to build the, uh, the resiliency and the ability to distribute our body weight evenly across those four limbs. And then also at times to forward load and, and then load back into the legs and, 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 and shift that weight, um, not necessarily evenly, but perhaps throwing maybe 60 or 70% of the weight into the arms and the shoulders and perhaps taking it back into the legs and actually then being very good at accepting uh, a load and, 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 and feeling that change and dissipating it across the body in different ways. Mm -hmm. And, and I know from when, when you're looking at something like, uh, like loaded beasts, um, I'm not like, I'm not quite sure what the roll forward is called with the spine. When you unload loaded beast, you roll forward and you're almost in like a, I don't want to bring a yoga term, but an upward facing dog ends up being kind of the position that you're in, in full extension in the spine. And you look at the different positions, you're going from very loaded, lower body, unloaded, slight extension in the wrist, and then you're coming over, you're unloading the entire lower body to then load onto the wrist again. And yeah, as you said, that change, but you can modulate kind of how far the reach is or how close it is because the further it is under you the more you're going to come in front the more extension you're going to experience so if extension is the problem right mm. you can modulate for that if load is the problem you can modulate for that um, just using as you said you know using blocks or something like that yeah and and, and, and the animal flow movements individually on the on on their own are, are great assessment tools and i think sometimes you're not sure what a limitation is, is, is going to look like until you just ask that person to try a variation of that movement and, and not to be afraid to do that. And then if they're struggling, they'll, you know, on no uncertain terms, they'll tell you 
if, if they can yeah. or can't do it, or you'll clearly see it. And at that point, you can then say, okay, well, let's regress this a couple of steps. Or sometimes people think they can't do the movement and they'll tell you, for example, my, my hips just don't move into extension, but actually it's not the hips. Uh, you know, I, I've often found in a movement like a crab reaching animal flow where we've got one arm supporting the body weight because the other arm is lifted and we're bringing the hips up into extension. People will often say, well, I can't get my hips up high enough, but actually it's because they're not pressing out of the shoulder enough to then free up the ability to get the hips through. And it's just, it's a, it's a strength and, and perhaps mobility thing in the shoulder and, and not mm -hmm. the hips at all. And just helping them understand how to use the, the shoulder, how to create this hydraulic lift and corkscrew action into the ground and find space in their shoulder and stabilize that so that the brain feels like, yeah, great. Now I can press those hips through. Then sometimes that, that unlocks their potential without them even realizing that the, the, the hips were fine in the first place. It was coming from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Pushing out of the shoulder. It, and it's, it's, I also love how the, the cue is the same as you were talking with the tuck handstand, right? Like that isometric pushing out of the shoulder to find your stability. Same thing. Now crab and crab reach are kind of lower level movements than the handstand or the tuck handstand, but the same cue is all throughout your preparing them for eventually getting higher and higher up into that flexed, um, that flexed shoulder position. Yeah. All right. So, um, since we're running short on time, I just want to go through kind of a quick little lightning round here, uh, three questions and, uh, just the first kind of things that come to mind. So the first question is the top three books that you've read on any topic. Uh, I really enjoyed reading, um, James Clear book, Atomic Habits, which, uh, actually a relatively new book, I think, but that was absolutely awesome. Um, and so much super cool practical stuff in there. Um, uh, I, uh, I also like, um, uh, the book, I think it's, it's master, it's called mastermind and it's about Dave Brailsford. And, um, and I love his whole marginal gains principle and what he did for British cycling and taking that approach of dissecting every element of, of performance and, and what it takes to take a team that's won nothing and then put them onto the world stage and, and have them scoop up a whole bunch of, uh, of gold medals and, and, and records. Um, so, so that's a, that's a great, uh, I think it's mm -hmm. an audio book actually. Um, and then um, I, I'm not quite, quite sure what this says about me, but I quite like um, like the you know crime uh, thriller films and, and books. So I'm not sure if you've uh, seen the, the film Zodiac, and, and there's a book as well yeah. that that's based on. Yeah, and, and that, that was a great read. And just the kind of psychology of you know the uh, the dude who's you know out ravaging and yeah. killing people versus the cops and just that tug of war of trying to you know figure out what's going on and, and trying to catch this guy so that's 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 a cool cool book i enjoyed yeah. that yeah i don't think that uh that's out of the the ordinary uh when it comes to the fascination that you have sometimes with the the mind and, and once again this may sound bad but behind like serial killers or behind mm. um mob bosses or those types of things and how they do what they do and what's kind of going through their mind. And as you said, that push and pull between the cops trying to catch them. And then it's almost sometimes like with the Zodiac, like he was almost teasing the cops, right? Like he, yeah, he's kind of pushing them. <laughs> um, I was actually told about a, another book that I have to get. I believe it was Brandon Marcello who mentioned it to me on our podcast and uh, it's called mob rules. And it's like what the average businessman can learn from the mob. And I'm right. like, that sounds like a fantastic book because I love mob stories. Yeah, I've me too. I've always me been too, fascinated yeah. with it. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, I have to, so I have that book now. So it's packed up, unfortunately. But as soon as I get the new house and I get all the books unpacked, that's going to be probably the first book that I read. Um, really There's a whole bunch it. of really cool mob stuff on Netflix these days as well. There's some yeah. good hours of, uh, yeah. Yeah, like Fear. Oh, uh, I, I don't know if you guys have the same Netflix that we, because I know US is different than Canada. So UK is probably different too. But we had one that was called Fear City. So it's all yes, about the mob yeah. in New York. Oh man, yeah. that was... I wish though they would have done an extra episode at the beginning to talk about what was actually going on in the mob. So like lay the picture of what's going on first and then talk about 
year investigation in, in two, three, four, and five. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. Top three mentors along your journey thus far. Uh, I, I think when I first did my, my gym instructor qualification, like my, my very first sort of qualification that took me into the fitness world, the, the, the guy that I learned from this guy called Chris Roberts, actually, I still remember him. I have no idea what he's doing now. Um, but he, it was just an inspirational guy, you know, plenty of energy, uh, was passionate about health and fitness. And, you know, I, I was already, I'd already bought in at that time. Um, but he just, gave me that little extra push that, that I needed and just, you know, made me realize I was on the right route for what I wanted to do. So, you know, if Chris is out there and if he ever sees this, um, <laughs> thanks, man. You know, that was, <laughs> that was an awesome experience just, you know, taking my gym instructor course. Um, and then next, I would I'd probably say all of the collectively, all of the guys I worked with in my first ever permanent position as a personal training tutor uh, collectively were, were awesome role models because between us, we had, guys that were experts in physiotherapy, uh, nutrition, uh, like coaching and teaching um, mm. practice. And, and I kind of came in with more of a sports science, strength and conditioning kind of uh, knowledge. And, and between us, we'd sit in the office and just chew the fat and just spin out all kinds of awesome ideas. And I learned so much from those guys as a collective that, that and those guys are still you know, some of my best friends now. So, um, you know, kudos to those lot. Yeah. And then I'd, I'd also say definitely uh, Mike Fitch, the, you know, the creative animal flow who, you know, gave me the opportunity to work with him and, and, and the team. And uh, it's constantly been sort of a you know, source of, of, of mentoring and, and inspiration, and everything that he does. So you know, he leads from the top and, uh, and, and looks after us well and, and helps us all move forward as, as, as individuals. And, um, you know, we, we, we've got a great team now of 20 master instructors around the world and mm -hmm. no egos. Everyone is just, you know, supportive. We learn so much from each other and you know, I think Mike does a great job of, um, you know, spearheading that. So, uh, you know, throw him into that, that list for sure. <laughs> awesome. And then, uh, the last question is, uh, what would Richard of today tell or say to, um, 20 year old Richard? <laughs> I would, it would definitely say less of the chest and bicep workouts, man. Come on. <laughs> like, you know, go, go and stretch a little bit, will you? <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I love that. Yeah. It's probably the, the thing that most people go to when they first go into the gym, specifically males, young males, it's, it's chest and biceps. Cause that's what they see. I was told and I had my my mindset reframed, unfortunately, once I was done high school and university and was now working, uh, my boss at the time, who uh, was an ex-CFL player, so Canadian um, Football League here, and um, a great guy, great businessman, and he just came up to me one day and he's like, hey, Adam, so just so you know, um, wider shoulders make you look bigger pecs don't really do much without shoulders. So he's like, start with the shoulders, like get shoulders first and then go. Um, and it's the other thing, like another piece of that as well is I, I learned, and this is earlier on that triceps are always going to make your arms look bigger than biceps ever could because triceps are just, they're just larger. There's more heads. It's, they can get wider and it, like, it just makes your arm look bigger. So I also learned that as well. So I'm like, okay, triceps, and shoulders, shoulders not necessarily pecs and buys <laughs> that's it so, so yeah we all, we all fell into that trap dude we all, yeah we all, we all got sucked in <laughs> yeah um okay so i know i know you're really busy and i know like we're at, we're out of time but um do you have any products or projects that you are currently working on that you would just like to um talk about um there's a few things in the in in the pipeline i'm i'm, I'm trying to to get around to pulling together uh an online program a lot of people sort of hit me up on instagram and, and ask if, if i have any you know, online training um uh, plans that, that integrate a lot of the things that we've spoken about which are you know how how can we stay in shape how can we build muscle how can we uh gain strength but how can we also integrate the the movement training into that and and, and you know what exercises should we use and how should we structure that um so you know it, it, it's gonna, it represents a lot of the ideas that, that I've been toying with over the last few years. And I'm going to try and get around to formalizing that and putting that into some kind of plan that if anybody's interested, they, they can check that out when I finally you know, get it completed. Uh, yeah. No, no, no promises on timeline yet, but, um, <laughs> but for now that's, uh, that's, uh, that's in the pipeline. Yeah. Awesome. And then, um, 
where can our audience find out more about you and what you do as well? Um, obviously animal flow. So you can Google animal flow and you'll find it pretty much instantly. Um, but where can people go to find more about you? Yeah, so I'm the, I also have a role as a, uh, the product development manager at, at a training um, provider in, in the UK called Train Fitness. Um, so I work for those guys three days a week. Uh, and so you can, you can check out the website for the kind of stuff that we do. And, uh, but I think, you know, Instagram is, is, is where I'm most vocal or present with, you know, just brain dumping on, on people. And I, I don't really have an, an agenda with my, my social media account. I'm not trying to sell anything. I just like to put out, you know, ideas that are in my head and, uh, share, share stuff that I'm doing in training sessions. So, you know, if you're interested, just have a poke around and see some of the stuff that I like to do then, uh, rich underscore Scrivener on, on IG. And then, uh, you can check that out if you're interested. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I definitely have to get to kind of finishing up some animal flow stuff because I want to kind of have the full gamut of not just knowing the movements and being able to do them, but being able to program them and understand more about them, as you said, from almost like a, a science background and then the programming perspective as well and being able to integrate it at all. So, uh, but I'm very much a live education person. I, I don't do well online. And so for me, I'm like, come on, we got to, got to get flights back, got to get uh, in-person <laughs> education going again so I can, uh, so I can fly somewhere to take it. Cause um, like, I know we, like we do animal flow here in, in Canada, but I want, I always like to travel when I take courses. I don't like to do them here, even though mm. it costs me more money. I like to travel. So maybe I'll have to make a um, head out to UK or something and see you when you're running a course in London or something like that. And um and we can, we can chat again in person, but uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. And um, I just really appreciate you putting the time aside in your busy schedule. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's uh, been great talking to you. State of the industry podcast. I'll be back.